Coming up, it's my 1,000th episode of the Bill Simmons podcast. So, of course, we got to do it the right way. We got to have a buddy of mine. We have to have a couple ringer people. We have to have a celebrity. Well, check, check, and check. It's all next. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we put up a new rewatchables on Tuesday night. We did Hard to Kill. It is a comedy starring Steven Seagal. It didn't used to be a comedy. It used to be an action movie. Kyle Brandt and I had an absolute blast breaking it down. It was one of the hardest I've ever laughed on a rewatchables, especially on Zoom. It's really hard to totally 100% crack the other person up on Zoom, but I think we did. We just, that movie is so ridiculous and Seagal was so ridiculous that we had a blast talking about it. So go check that one out. And coming up on this podcast, Joe House popping on, talking NBA finals and US Open. He is here for the US Open, which starts tomorrow in Brookline, Massachusetts, in Chestnut Hill on a street that I used to live on when I was a little kid. I'll have stories about that when I'm on Fairway Rolling this week. And then Frank Curtis, Nor Princiati, they came on to talk about the NFL, specifically the Deshaun Watson situation, saga, whatever word you want to use, but it is just getting worse and worse by the week. And we're trying to figure out how the media should cover it, how people should feel about it, how it's going to affect the season, and a whole bunch of other things related to that. Really good discussion there. And then last but not least, Bill Hader, who was on the 500th episode, and now he's on the thousandth episode. I think every 500, I'll just have him on. But season three of Barry just finished. And he's going to tell us about that and what it's like to write a show during the pandemic. Weird culture stuff that he's following. He always has like the most eclectic culture taste of pretty much anyone I know. So that is the lineup for today. I wanted to thank everybody for uh, for spreading the word for this podcast, for, for listening, for saying nice things. Um, you know, it's... Doing a thousand of these. I remember the first one, we, we put up two on the same day, I think on October 1st. It was right when my ESPN contract ended. And we were hoping that, um, you know, had four years at Grantland and really eight years at ESPN doing the, uh, the BS report. Really felt like this could be the foundation of a podcast network and a digital company. And 
just kept grinding away. A thousand seems like a lot. It seems like when when the baseball players have like the three thousand hits or the five hundred home runs or whatever, and you just kind of go, "Wow, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of day after day." I think like going back to um, ESPN in eight years, I probably did another. I don't know. I'm say five or six hundred, maybe more at ESPN. Plus, we've done almost two hundred fifty rewatchables. So I have definitely <laughs> put in my ten thousand hours with uh, with podcasting. It's still really fun for me. I think the biggest way. This podcast has changed. It's just, it's a little more reactive than it used to be. Sal and I, when we were at ESPN, we used to tape Guest Alliance, you know, 07 through 2015. We used to tape it Monday. You know, sometimes we wouldn't be able to tape it. Sal would be doing Jimmy Kimmel show. We wouldn't be able to tape it till like three o'clock. And we would just put it up and we would talk about yesterday's games and the lines. And it was okay because the news cycle is a lot slower. I think now what's changing is, um, there's so many podcasts now and just in general, the the sports talk cycle, which I think is in a lot better shape than it used to be. But when things happen, people want to hear from people they like and podcasts they like and guests they like and things like that. So I think we have kind of sped up the process a little bit. Sal and I tape on Sunday nights, which we didn't always do, but you know, that's just how you have to do it. The games end, Sunday night football ends, you want to go. I think that the biggest thing for us is just with the pandemic, we learned how to do stuff remotely a little bit better. So that was a bonus. But it's still way more fun to do it in person. I think like going forward, definitely have toned down the guests the last couple of years, which is mostly pandemic related just because I really want to be in person with the guests for the most part. I think that's going to come back as uh, as we improved our office space and um, our office situation. We're going to have this nice little downtown complex. I have the ability to go out and like I went to Adam Sandler's office two weeks ago and plopped down a Zoom recorder with two mics and we taped a podcast. I didn't even have a producer there. So I think there's going to be some opportunities to to think outside the box a little bit with the podcast. But ultimately, you know, it's a place for me that I just get to come here and talk about sports with smart people and people in my life and people from the ringer and special guests and celebrities. And it is still an absolute blast to do. So I appreciate Everybody who spreads the word for us, everybody who's reached out to say they like the pod and it's not going anywhere, at least for a little while. I don't know how many years I have left. I know I, know I keep saying that, but it, it is going to be one of those things. I'm going to be gone one day where I'm just going to be gone. And you'll be like, wait, where did he go? And I was like, I'm out. I'll see you guys later. Thanks for everything. So just be prepared. It's not happening anytime soon, but it will happen. Um, it's like a t- on a TV show. Like when I remember ER when people are just like, wait, Clooney's leaving ER? What happened? Wait, Anthony Edwards is leaving too? It's That's going to be me down the road. I don't know when, but it'll happen. Uh, but for now, like, I love doing it. Tate Frazier was the first producer. And it's been fun to watch him to go on even bigger and better things. He's now an on-air person, but um, he was a huge part of the early days and was coming over to my house and um, basically became like a, a third child where he would just walk in and do whatever and eat with us. And then eventually nephew Kyle, Kyle Creighton, he took over, I think, in 2018, and he's been with us ever since. And, you know, it's it's been fantastic to work with somebody who, you know, I knew since he was 10 years old, 11 years old, nine years old, I remember. But um, but we have a really good thing going. And then a bunch of good people behind the scenes, including uh, lately Dylan Burke and Steve Cerruti have been popping on as well to help us with some of the video stuff, but the whole ringer infrastructure we have. Um, we're just... 
I gave a couple interviews this week. We're we're in a really good place right now at the Ringer, and it's it's been an absolute blast to get to the point, especially you know the pandemic. You never know what's going to happen to content, where are things going, um, how are we going to be able to do how we do stuff, and are we going to be able to hire people the same way? And I just feel like uh, I'm so proud of everything we've accomplished. It was six year anniversary, I think, two weeks ago, but um, the amount of talent we have, both on camera and people writing and people behind the scenes and everybody at Ringer Films. We have so many good things coming up there. So just in general, it's a, it's a really nice time and it's been really rewarding professionally. And this podcast has been a big piece of it. So thank you for listening. And thanks to these guys, our friends from Project. All right, we're taping this part of the podcast. It is almost 6 o'clock Eastern time. I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. My buddy Joe House is here. House has a rule. Anytime the U.S. Open is in the same location as a potential deciding NBA Finals game, he's going to try to go to both things in the same day. So that's going to happen. The U.S. Open is in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. The NBA Finals is tomorrow night. The Celtics, since we've known each other, have only been in the Finals three times. This is the 19th Finals game that they've had. The U.S. Open was here in 1989. I went to it with my dad. It was 130 degrees. One of the, that's the only thing I remember is just being so hot, just wondering if one of us was going to die. The Ryder Cup was here in 1999. The odds of two major events like this at the same... I don't, it's incalculable. But anyway, we're here. In Boston. That's the part of it. Like the, the site uh, of, of our uh, friendship nearly. I mean, we were in yeah, Worcester. we were in Worcester. 45 Lots minutes. and lots of very good times between us in Boston. Like, it was a lock of the century that I was going to invite myself up to this. I I hope, you know, we were making the plans. It wasn't clear how the series was going to play out. I hope that I'm not here for emotional support tomorrow night. Well, there was, when we were up 2-1, I say we like I'm on the team. We were up 2-1 and it was like, wow, we might not even get to a game six. We'd be able to close this out in five. We're bigger and we're faster and we're stronger and we have better players. And then all of a sudden it flipped. Well, I mean, halfway through the fourth quarter of uh, game four, I was like, oh, I might just be staying home. It'll be a lovely home weekend with my family for Father's Day, which is great. But here we are. So the NBA Finals, I did a podcast right afterwards. I went to game five and I've been trying to be more positive heading into game six. There's a couple things that are alarming to me. I, we, we covered in the pod, but... I don't know if I did quite a good enough job on Monday night because I was so butthurt about the Celtics losing. Just like, just how good the Warriors have been defensively. We talked about a little about how the the Warriors seem to have solved the stuff Boston was doing offensively, and it's just like it's just the, it's like Groundhog Day with some of these bad possessions. And then Wiggins and Clay just getting better as the series went along. To me, it's just those two things in a nutshell. And if the Celtics are just going to keep turning it over, this is going to be a wrap. This, the thing that bums me out is. It always sucks, and I'm, I know this has happened to you in your life, to root for the team that's probably more talented but isn't as savvy. And, and, then, and you just leave it on the table, and you think back 20 years from now, and be like, oh, my God, if that hadn't happened and that. And I'm worried that it's becoming one of those series. But that was the conundrum in trying to handicap how this thing was going to go down from the, from the jump, from the outset, which is the 
nearly unprecedented transformation of the Celtics team between the first half of the season, the second half of the season, the unprecedented run that they went on, all of it keyed by a transcendental defense. And then you were saying, we're going to put that defense up against uh, a historically uh, unmatched offensive juggernaut just in terms of the identity. I know yeah. that this version of Golden State right. is not the same as some of the others, but that's Well, they're, they're the still era. really consistent. They're yes. still like 105 to 110 points per possession every game. And the, if you're trying to split hairs between choosing a side, the idea is basically like, can you talk yourself into this Celtics defense shutting down the experience, all of the 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 playoff legs that that you know Golden State has in those three key guys and you know that that's the difference to me right now it's just honestly experience really nothing else as far as i'm concerned and curry was incredible in game four when they needed it the most and i don't want to say they stole the game because curry just took it but that's a game i think when you look back on they needed it i think if the the warriors being down 3-1 i just don't believe in them quite enough to think they could have run the table but now it feels like it's flipped now the celtics are in a position we'll find out who the refs are tomorrow i'm now in the position where it's like can can we please have scott foster or is want there, the extender we, we, we need, need the, the extender. extender i need the extender tomorrow and everybody wants the extender because that means then we'll think about the epic sunday night of father's day you will have the u.s open will conclude around 7 30 or so eight o'clock yeah. they'll give out the trophy and then have a game seven in the nba finals how sweet would that be it would be sweet except for the part we <laughs> could lose well i mean you know objectively you the probably, warriors probably seem- will I was watching, I was facing their bench and they just seem really confident. It seems like they are convinced now that they're going to win this series. That was my takeaway, which means we need some sort of act to then flip it back. Like in game four, the act was Curry was just surreal. And that flipped the series. The Celtics now have to figure out a way to flip it back. And we've seen this happen before. Like, you know, 2008 game four, I think the Celtics were better than the Lakers that year, but you still needed the 25 point comeback. And you still needed like just that momentum. And then it was like, okay, now we got this. And my fear, I guess, is the the curry piece. And, you know, the Celtics bench just being done, which we talked about on Monday night, that they're just complete non-factors. That was the bench that won them the Milwaukee game seven. And it just to... It's still the bench that could win t- tomorrow night game six. There's no reason that Marcus Smart and Peyton Pritchard and Derek White can't all go off. We, we've seen it. They've demonstrated the ability to do it. They're definitely buoyed by by the home crowd. They're definitely buoyed by the vibes. I mean, why can't they do that again? They could. The okay. league wants it to happen. The, the, Where are you staying too, on Tatum these you? days? Um, it is. He's twenty four years old, so it, it's a great um, conversation to have. And and then historically, I'm sure you. I know you've been doing this when you look at other twenty four year olds. Who are sort of He's at ahead the of the stage. Game. Yeah. 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 But he um isn't wearing the weight of the pressure of the situation very well. It doesn't look like he's comfortable. Now, I I tweeted on Monday, can he get to Germany between Monday and Thursday? <laughs> because there it does look like there is something physically wrong with him. Those air balls, the balls that are gra- barely graze the front of the See, rim. I think that was just exhaustion. Okay. Cause I because because Udoka, he rolled the dice and he just didn't take those guys out in the second half. He treated it like it was a game seven. But 
I thought Brown and Tatum were just the amount of energy they have to expend in the perimeter, just chasing Curry around and being wary of him combined with the offensive load. I, I think that was a huge mistake. I don't think he trusted the bench, but at the same time, you're not going to steal the game if those guys are playing the whole second half in Golden State. And well, especially the way Wiggins was playing. They won the third quarter by by such a margin that the, it was a contested they game. They won the first 10 minutes of the third quarter. Yeah, but but that was that the, it was a, you know, a possession or two game until yeah. they went one for eight to start the fourth quarter, which was brutal. And then, and then they over. had no outs because the bench no is that they brought White in for a second and he stunk. I ran into somebody with the Celtics after the game after I tipped the pod and they know what to do against this team. They're just not doing it, which is a really frustrating position to be in. That they, They're showing them and telling them, hey, play with pace, move the ball, don't do the one-on-one stuff. And then these moments happen in these games and it just breaks You're down. You're describing but, the schizophrenia of youth. You're just yeah. talking about young players who haven't been there before going up against a team. Well, it's like your team, the 18, your one John Wall, Bradley Beal run that I went to, the Kelly Olynyk game. Game seven of the Eastern Conference the semifinals, the high watermark of the Wizards yeah. the last 10 years. But you were in that game, and what happened? We got exhausted. The fourth quarter, they both ran out of gas in the fourth quarter. You played your top two guys too much. They had John to. Wall did not make the kind of savvy second half decisions. You mean he was tired. He was he was blown out. But he was taking deep shot. Please take more your threes, John Wall. They're not going in. And Why do we have to bring the Wizards into this? I don't know. If I was trying to include you. <laughs> I'm still gambling on these basketball games. I mean, well, the know. Celts are minus four tomorrow, but they're like, what are they, plus 350 for the series now? Yes. And I think people rightly believe it would be really far-fetched for them to win two in a row. Now, I'm, I'm one of those people. The case for them would be they won in Milwaukee game six and they won a game seven in Miami. So they have backs to the wall, come through twice, and now the backs are officially to the wall. The case against them is that I thought the biggest advantage they had was they I thought they had either three of the best four players in the series or four of the best five, depending on how you feel about, I don't know, Horford versus Draymond or whoever. Wiggins... I mean, he's been probably the, he was the best player in game five. He was one of the best players in game four. And he's basically been able to match Jalen, at least from that. And then it's Curry versus Tatum. Curry's going to win that. So now all of a sudden that advantage is gone. And then Clay, who looked washed at various points of these playoffs, now looks reliable. But what, what's surprising about that Clay development? Do you feel like it's a surprise? It is to me. Okay. I thought seeing him in person, games one and game two, he just didn't move the same to me. Um, but at game four, game five, and especially game five, which I was able to watch a little more closely, man, he looked... He's moving. He's moving side to side again. It's Defensive, amazing. Defensively on, on Jalen. He was excellent. He can, he's, he's got the lateral movement. And it's so... Now they have the... If, if he can do that, and he played like 41 minutes in that game, yeah. now they have the two guys to throw against him. And what they're doing is putting as much of the game as possible in the Smarts' hands. And Smarts' decision-making, depending on the game, you know, it's those lob passes that just go right to the other team and he's trying to split it or he's taking the three. And this is where it's like, is Smart a point guard? Yes. He's, we were able to make, you know, game six of the NBA finals with him as our point guard. He's a point guard. But now it's like this whole extra level. I just don't understand why they're not forcing Warriors turnovers anymore. Warriors had six turnovers in that game. 
What I, happened? This was the slot. They were sloppier than we were. <laughs> they, 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 they toned it down. You don't see the ball flying all over the place. I don't honestly, I don't see as many passes out of them. I'm not sure what spec, second spectrum is, is revealing, you know, in terms of ball movement and so forth. I'm sure there's stuff in there that KOC is deep in the numbers. Maybe um, we need more about. pressure. I'm saying we again. I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> I've lost my mind. No, the series, the nine weeks of this, I just, I, I pressure on who? This is the thing. You're, I'm saying ball pressure, like maybe make them work a little bit more to get in their offense. I, I, the the idea of trying to take the ball out of Steph Curry's hands has been sort of floated out there. Boston chose, you know, made a, a strategic decision to not go that route. Trying to think of a best case scenario for tomorrow night that doesn't just involve Scott Foster. <laughs> well, what, what do you mean? It's it's exactly the script that we've seen already in this series. It's uh, Smart gets going, Pritchard gets going, Horford knocks down two See, threes. I think it's the bench guys. It is, I of can't course. Believe, I can't believe we're at the point in the season where because we watched PTI before and they and they were both saying it's got to be Tatum. This has to be a Tatum night. I feel the opposite. To me, this is a Pritchard. Yeah, and and white, white, white floaters, and, white making a three in and the Grant first quarter. Grant Williams, who's been MIA for two rounds now, those three guys have to really give them something because if they're going to beat the Warriors, it's it has to be the the depth, and they have to figure out a way to only have Tatum and Brown playing thirty six, thirty eight minutes a game. And by the way, if you if if these guys disappeared in the Milwaukee series like they did in this series, they wouldn't be Milwaukee. You would have lost to Milwaukee. That's we true. The Celtics would have lost. lost. That's and, right. You know, White was so huge in the Miami series. That was one of the biggest reasons they beat Miami. But uh, Milwaukee, I'll ask you, you're an impartial observer. Even though you and everybody in the Ringer Gambling Show like to give me shit about Boston and being beholden Boston. I don't know why JJ's like, I don't want to be indebted to the pod father, bro. <laughs> but I, I don't know Take why. Take JJ? It's pretty yeah, good. It's pretty good. Hey, listen, bro, I don't like giving the pod father any, <laughs> any props. Uh, um, but Love JJ. You're impartial. Yes. If Middleton hadn't gotten hurt, is Milwaukee the champion this year? Oh, I don't. I don't know that. The, I would. I don't know that I would have picked Milwaukee over Golden State. I don't know. Okay. If, I, I mean, it would have been fantastic. I definitely would have thought think that they would have beat Boston. I do think that Boston's a you know this is the 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 growing pain season. It's magnificent. Like think of how glass half full. I know. I the need to get there. Again. It's amazing. Like what happened over the last 35 games of the regular season and what they showed over the course of the playoffs, a brand new rookie coach and all these young guys. And you, the, the Celtics didn't add a super duper star to this mix. No. They added Derek White. And he was a really important cog to this machine, especially with the defensive uh, emphasis. But like you, you, we were having these conversations in December. Is this the time for the Celtics to break up? Brown and, and Tatum. what did I say? Bro, that was not even six months ago. What you did said, I say? Fuck no. I did have one weak moment where I wondered about <laughs> Carl Anthony Towns, like a who says no type of moment. All right. That's it. But other than that, I was like, nope, nope, not breaking these dudes up. Because I want to see him play with a real point guard. I think you're right. I, I should be more optimistic and happier about it. This is going. The problem is when you're this close to a title and you just, you might never be back and you start going to some dark places and... Um, it's just hard for me to fathom that it's going to be Clay having not played for 900 plus days and Andrew fucking Wiggins. And that's going to be like, why didn't you win the 2022 title? It's like, well, there's 
I have 17 different ways to answer this question, but ultimately Andrew Wiggins was awesome. No, Ult- ultimately. And, and Curry in game four. The, the way that the Golden State Warriors have built themselves and established an identity and have a winning culture, it's Steph effing Curry. You lost the finals because of Steph Curry, and that's it. And the greatest player in the series almost always wins the finals. And if he loses the finals, it's because the second greatest player in the series is usually like a hair below him, like yeah. Durant, 2017-18, and Curry. Yeah. And then that made, well, LeBron didn't win those years, but these guys were in the series. That's right. Um, in this case, the Curry piece. And, you know, Curry sucked in game four for him, even though I, I still feel like the the stuff he creates is just incredible. Game five. Uh, sorry, game five. Yeah, yeah. Um, he sucked for him in game five, which makes me think, is he going to suck twice? No, I don't think so. But you know what? The Boston didn't lose game four because of Curry's 43. They self, this is the problem. This is why you're frustrated. And I understand it. It's, it, it's self-inflicted wounds. It's the stupid turnovers. It's losing the points in the paint battle. You can't keep losing the effing points in the paint battle. Jalen, I mean, uh, Tatum shot four for 15 from two points. That, that's how you lose basketball games. Can't, can't have it. I think when you get older, you remember all the ones that got away. Mm-hmm. Like, I can still see Bill Lambert backpedaling in game five, Boston Pistons in 1991. And coming out of the timeout, they're inbounding under the basket. And I'm watching him. I'm like, they're going to fucking lob it to him and he's going to shoot. Does my team realize this? And then watching him in person backpedal shot and I still see it. It's 31 years later. We were in college when it happened. And I wonder like some of this stuff, some of the stuff from this series, I feel like is going to be pretty haunting to be this close. I hope, look, maybe Tatum, maybe this will be it. Maybe this is some sort of dramatic, whatever. Maybe Al Horford gives the greatest speech of all time before the game. I'm 36 years old. <laughs> I've been dying here to get their old life. Let's leave it all on the table. Maybe Robert Williams goes fucking ape shit. So who knows? As long as they don't get Phil Mickelson into the locker room to give a motivational speech. <laughs> I think you'll be okay. So you like the Celtics tomorrow or you don't? I do. Yeah, they're, they're part of the... the. Of course, we gave out a preposterous four-leg same-game parlay as we do on the Ring of Gambling show, but we like the Celtics uh, minus four. Because if you like the, the team, you would just lay the points. Every single game has been at least 10 points. Might as well play the adjusted line as well. Uh, Raheem there, Palmer. There are no close games. Raheem Palmer joined us on the gambling show. He was all in on the unders. Yes. And he's right. That these, everything slows down. Guys get tired. The games get uglier as the finals go along. That under crushed, I think, both games, right? Game four and game five. For sure. Yes. In game six, I would take the under, under two. We're going to have, there's going to be a lot of celebrities at this game tomorrow. It's oh, yeah. Very hard ticket. I think some of the golfers might be there. Why Why wouldn't they? Especially if the golfers have later tea times yeah, on right. Friday. Yeah. So we'll Come have enjoy that. the hoops game. Blew off a little steam. It's a game six. We're going to have people anyway. And you have your Golden State. People will come out from San Fran, right? Well, and you also have the drunk Boston crowd. Because that's like <laughs> I can't wait. I this actually is why think it's I been invited a, myself. I think it's been a detriment because the game, the game starts so late. The crowd... 907 to 11 <laughs> they're peaking they've been out for three four hours but then by 11 you get like when it's like rocky house when you're like hey does anyone have some coffee <laughs> i don't know what you're gonna be like because you're going to the u.s open first you'll be outdoors i'm gonna be outside all day tomorrow and then and it, we'll recharge up we'll get a quick couple bloody marys to get ready for the game 
let's uh, we'll take a break and then we're going to talk U.S. Open and House is going to tell us who to bet on. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, a word winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24 7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60 day money back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S. Simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. Have you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, so the U.S. Open starts in Brookline, Massachusetts. The country club. The country club. Have you played it? Never played it. I lived across the street. Did um, you, you didn't even sneak on? I did, but you know what? I was looking at Google Earth trying to fit, because I remember the hole that we used to sneak on. Yes. And there's the public course that's part of it. I oh, think I we see. used to sneak on the public course. I, I thought see. we stunk on Brookline Country Club, but it's not on Hammond Street. The, the it's not like Club. the green that yeah. I was thinking wasn't. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. All right. Um, it's amazing that it's there. I think it's going to be absolutely impossible to get in and out of there. I don't know how they're going to figure that out. But, well, um, poor Nathan Hubbard and I tomorrow. I the know. Fairway Rolling Crew. We'll see. And then, then we're all going on Friday. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. I'll either be completely crestfallen or I'll have a hop of my step depending on how game six goes. <laughs> I didn't even think about the possibility of mopey Bill Simmons walking around. Oh, but there will absolutely be mopey, Damn angry it. Bill Simmons. We're going to find, I, I have some good angles. I've already laid the groundwork to find a place with good Bloody Marys. That's where I just just make a ton of bets on Friday if the Celtics <laughs> are out. I'm golf just, bets. NBA draft bets and golf oh, bets. I'll be bets. trying to parlay Chet Holmgren and, you, <laughs> and John Ron. Yeah, yeah, Willie Z and Chet. Big Willie Chet. Z. FanDuel's own Willie Z. He's like, we're basically teammates with him though. Is that true? He just did like a FanDuel thing. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. Like, I loved didn't him know anyway. That. Yeah, we right. already loved him. I, I love him. He's all over this card I'm looking at right now. So the we'll, we'll go in order. Biggest questions. First one, there's been a lot of how is Phil going to be treated because of the the live tour. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I was in the mode of, I feel like there's going to be a mass hole element in a good way, like just kind of riding him, giving him shit. But he was treated apparently really well today in the, in the practice stuff. And there's still a lot of people who really like Phil Mickelson. I feel like he's become Darth Vader in a lot of ways, but there's still some people out there who just don't agree. The thing that, that I'll ask you um, and we know that Boston is is a pretty sophisticated. I'm not here to blow Boston, but uh, since I'm here, um, pretty sophisticated sports fans. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's still the case that a lot of the American sporting public doesn't quite have their head around what's ha- happening in professional golf. Right. They they know about it. Yes. But they don't really fully understand that this has been throwing a chainsaw in a hot tub. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So I, I don't know what what do you anticipate in terms of the crowds that will show up at Brookline uh, at the country club? You know, are they? Are they just regular fans, sports fans are like the U.S. Opens here. That's cool. Let's go see it. Or well, do you think we, they're deep we know golf go, nerds? We know it goes to golf tournaments. It's a mix. I mean, it's a, it's a gigantic golf tournament. It's not yeah. just a regular golf tournament. But you have that kind of, you have the rich zip up. Yeah. Sweater Quarter guys. Zips. Quarter zip. Quarter um, zip bros. You have the people who, I mean, it's interesting how they do it where everybody who belongs to the country club, I think they get two or four tickets. So you have yeah, all those sure, people. Sure. Um, people calling in favors, but you asked me before, like what the buzz is for the tournament. And I just feel like the Celtics has overwhelmed it in all these different ways. If this was even a week later, this, the Phil and the whole, the live tour, I think would be such a bigger story locally right now. It's like Celtics, 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 and that's it. So, well, I, I honestly think that he's going to get a pretty favorable reaction, uh, unless mm. somebody shows up. Who, who's really been following all of the, the twists and turns with the Saudis and has a point of view, wants to do something, you know, make a point about, you know, the 9-11 families or the journalist from the Washington Post that was killed. And, you, you know, it's, it's Or evil Greg Norman just looming behind Shipnuck, <laughs> our guy on Shipnuck, that weird photo of him being escorted out. As Shipnuck was getting kicked out Norman's the press just conference. looming behind him. It almost looked like a cardboard cutout of Norman. Yeah, I mean, that that, that whole thing is such bad vibes every, every which way. But to answer the original question, I think the crowd will be mostly favorable, but I do think there's going to be a couple of people. Who it only takes them. one or two. Yeah. And, and, you know, the mics will be up close and everything. And who knows what kind of reaction he'll, he'll have, if, if any. He's been a very, this is the weirdest version of Phil Mickelson any of us have encountered through his entire professional career. He's got career. the Elon Musk face now. <laughs> What's that We were talking mean? about that for the pod, the, that super tight eyeball face where you're just, you look like you've just been electrocuted up your asshole. What do you, I mean, what what drugs do that? Is that Ritalin? I don't know. If I, like if listen, you start Ritalin if you're 51 years old, is that what happens? If I ever have that look on my, if my face ever looks like that, you have to tell me. Uh, like 10 years from now, it's like, oh my God, he's got Elon Musk face. Yeah. Just assume something horrible would happen. But I don't, Phil's dressing dark. Like you were telling me that there's people are joking about how he he looks like Hulk Hogan in the NWO. Because he, he's showing up at these press conferences in like all black or nearly all black. His his hair is greasy and slick black. It's slick back. He's got facial hair. He's never had facial hair before. It's clearly intentional. Here's my hot take about the live tour. It's been good for content. I think it's really interesting. I think it's horrible. I think it's reprehensible. But I also think it's been a really fascinating wrinkle for professional golf, where watching these guys decide if they're going to take the money or not, watching somebody like Dustin Johnson, who I think we felt like was, if he wasn't the most talented golfer, is in the top three or four. And for him to do that, to watch Mickelson be like, you know, uh, I'm fine just throwing away at least a piece of my legacy, maybe more than that. And just the individual decision, then to see how Rory kind of stepped up as you know, kind of the defender of this stuff. Yes. I, I think all of it's been really interesting as a fan. I wish we weren't having it, but it's not like it hasn't been interesting. No, and and there really isn't anything to compare it to in our lifetime. I guess if we looked back to the USFL and its efforts to, it's you know, it tried to make some incursion against the NFL. 
if the USFO maybe, is backed by Saudis? Well, that that that's the element of it that makes this, you know, really hard uh, to tolerate, really hard to stomach, and the 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 sports wash. I, I don't know if anybody will, you know, if we if this is something where we'll be able to get any kind of uh, agreement amongst the American sporting public, because lots of folks are like, "What's wrong with that? Doesn't the U.S. government do um, business with the Saudis?" Yeah, how about this? The WWE had multiple events over over there and they were dealing with the sports washing stuff for the last few years. And guess what? WWE's business is fine. So I think people are a little more forgiving than maybe it might seem on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, this social is, media. I, I readily acknowledge, you know, I live inside of a golf bubble and Nathan and I have been talking off air. We were rolling about this for, for months in, in yeah. the run up, even since last year. Um, but there, but there's a bigger piece of it yeah. that I think is even more fascinating than, who's going to play and not play. It's just how vulnerable the PGA Tour seems for an insurrection. And we've talked about this with, you know, like they're in one of the lockouts when we always talked about what would happen if there was a rival NBA. What would that look like? Would Would they ever do this? I'm watching this golf thing and thinking like, could this work for other sports? Like how many... Like this seems like the kind of thing Kyrie Irving would try to do, it, where he's like, "I'll get ten other guys, and here's our rival league. We'll play at the same time." Only basketball, and and I think the reason that 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 those are comparable is because this is something where the individual personalities are right. so big, you know that they they well, try. It's to, very similar, right? Like golf yes. has what twenty five real stars, or right. maybe less. Pro- NBA probably has less. probably less, like fifteen. Yeah, probably fifteen people who could have the sway to at least get, oh, that's a real thing. Like for golf, it was Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson. And then there'll be some names to come. I I think having those two initially, yeah. you think Brooks is coming? I do. Yeah. Really? His brother um, signed up. His brother played in the first event and he was defiant and gave a whole weird pitch in the press conference about, I'm not here to talk about that live thing. Why are you guys casting a dark cloud on this? He tried to take, be offensive about it. Like, but they didn't have the, the CBS piece of this where they paid all this money in NBC. Like they pay the, this big right stuff for the different majors. Yes. And now they're, well, the majors are different. One? The majors are different. The majors will, will be fine. The majors are always that, that that's really where the sustainability will the majors and viability. Be fine, though? Yes. What if, but what if the PJ is like, Hey, these guys can't be in if they're, if they're in this tour, no, they no, can't play the you, majors. The majors have their own governing bodies and their own rules. They're, they're not beholden to the PGA Tour. The PGA what Tour has no sway. When are they going to get the same pressure from the outside world that, you know? What do you what mean? If, like, what happens with, I don't know, the, the U.S. Open next year, if people are like, this is wrong, these guys shouldn't be in there. Would they? How do they explain that to the public? I, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, they they, they are capable, of, though. They have the, the ability to set their own standards and rules and eligibility criteria. They're like the Soho House. And they could they We've could changed exclude. our rules. The, the the true well, well the two um, developments yet to come are what happens with the official world golf rankings because that's how guys get eligible to play in the majors and then what do the governing bodies of the majors themselves do the masters is a purely invitational tournament they can invite they can invite Bill Simmons to go compete in the masters tournament if they were so inclined that would be a mistake because I'd probably <laughs> I'd be like when somebody. John Rahm hit Sage Steel with the golf ball. I'd, I'd have like 10 of those. People uh, would have to wear helmets when I was teeing up. Helmets on, on every hole. They'd have to get out helmets. But uh, so the, the Masters, like the Machiavellian play for them would be 
you know, any, anybody who we want the best players, so we're just going to have the best players and they'll get gigantic ratings, you know, whatever, but potentially if there's so many, a lot of this, oh, I'm sure the masters these stories will do the right thing. are yet to be written. <laughs> One of the things that's going to happen is that folks aren't wrapping their heads around right now. There's only three live events that go up against the tour until the tour has its little uh, championship. It's like FedEx cup, blah, blah, blah thing. Yeah. After that, Five live events all here. Oh, a vulnerable time for the PGA. Trump. Trump. Two of those events are at Trump courses. Oh. And you, we're going to see the Trump universe descend oh onto God. those things. Donald Trump will be at Trump Bedminster. The last event of that season, their championship event is at Doral, which Trump owns. So I'm just telling you, put, put, a, you know, put a pin in it. Wait and see what happens when that universe descends and has its imp- the impact that it's going to have. Descends? Is that the word we're going to... Well, they're, the verb we're they're, they're up above right now. They're like just watching quietly. <laughs> Wait, so, but then the they're other thing that's the time of the golf season when it's suddenly not interesting anymore. That's right. Because it's football, advantage. it's college football. But I bet there'll be some headlines. I bet they grab a couple headlines. And Ter- the tournaments go from Thursday to Saturday. Can so we talk about competing. what a terrible name the Live Tour is? <laughs> it's so- like, how did they, they, they would have been like my 190th choice. I honestly think that they um, had a line on all of the uh, Super Bowl 54 merch from Miami. And they just grabbed all that shit. Somebody, somebody had like a. Uh, oh, that's interesting. They had, what's his face? Who, who's the guy who, who operates in the second? Mike. Uh, yeah. The, co- the co-owner of the Sixers. Ruben. Ruben's got, you know, in, in, a, in a Ruben kind of way, somebody's got this cachet of all that stuff from, from Miami, all that Super Bowl garb. Boom. There we go. I bought the whole ca- the inventory of it. They should have caught it like the oil tour. <laughs> uh, that's well, a little it's a little too on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So who are we betting on? Uh, so this is a U.S. U- Open. U.S. Brookline, Open. Massachusetts. Yeah. It's a giant big boy golf course. You know who used to live near the country club, by the way? Who that? The legend. When he moved here, he's as a rookie. Oh. He lived probably because he lived near where we live, but he lived probably like a he didn't three minute start off ride. playing golf. Like he didn't. No, even I'm just saying the le- this is sacred ground. Okay. All this right. A young, a young Billy Simmons, <laughs> the legend Larry Bird. There's been a lot of greatness. Curtis Strange. Okay. I mean, it's, it's all holy true. ground. Uh, all right. Um, the, the U.S. Open, the character of it over this like last, you know, seven or eight years, you have to be able to hit the ball really far. You have to be a strong person. If you look at the, both the physical body type mm. and, you know, the, the, um, the golf acumen of the guys that have won the U.S. Open over the last six, seven years. I'm going to give those guys to you. Yeah. Rom, yep. going backwards. Rom, beefy Bryson, 2020 empty. Oh, because we had two in 2021. My bad. Yeah. Gary Woodland, Brooks Kepler twice, DJ, Spieth, Martin Kamer. So Spieth, Jay Rose. Spieth won it at Chambers Bay in Seattle. Keimer at Pinehurst. So that we're, I'm really only going back like a half decade, I would say, of, of like the traditional big brawny golf courses where you're required to um, get the ball as far down as you can and then have the power, the strength, to hit the ball because you're not going to be in the in the fairway. You're going to be in the rough. Can you hit it out of the rough? That beef, beefy Bryson kind of paradigm. And that's true of Gary Woodland. That's true of DJ. That's true of, uh, of uh, John Rahm. So I think this venue, this setup, the way that it's shaping up, 
puts a premium on that caliber of player, that kind of player who can hit it a mile. So you have to have John Rahm and you have to have Roy McIlroy exposure across the board. Rory's been, you know, uh, has found something. It seems like here, Seth. Well, it seems like you, the, you the role that he is taking on as a spokesperson for the tour, for the legacy, for oh, the history, You're has lit a fire else. under his ass. This is like all the people that bet on Edmonton because it's he like Connor McDavid. It's his time. A 62 stop. on Sunday in Canada. He's not well, winning. It, I, I don't disagree, but you have to have some exposure to him. You have to have some top five, some top ten exposure to him. I'd like to, to apologize to Martin Keimer for reading a list and saying, Kamer, who hasn't won the U.S. Open? What do you mean, who hasn't? Like what? What guy who hasn't put that notch on their belt yet? Out of like the main guys. I mean Xander. There's nobody. Uh, uh, Xander's not winning it. Well, I, he has the best consecutive streak of top ten finishes uh, at the U.S. Open. Xander's going to put his his major lingerie on like he always does. Oh no! And tempt us and tease oh, us. Oh no! And then right when we we're <laughs> stuck to our bed with the handcuffs on, he's just going to leave like he always does. I think he's sort of in the category. He and Patrick Cantlay are the two players that. Oh, folks, another tease. I, but another, I'm just saying, you just mentioned the two biggest teases. Those are the two like best to have never no won. Tony Finau is up there. Tony Finau, actually, I love him this week. I have him in a lot of that my feels like he, he's up to heading into round four and then. Who Finau? It's a seventy-seven. No, I, I, the formula for Finau is is a weekend, like what he just did in Canada, which is shoot sixty-two on Saturday and sixty-four on Sunday, and mm. finish in solo second behind Rory because oh. Rory was unstoppable. I like this version of, of Finau. Um, it, he, he still hits the ball a mile, but there's other elements of his game that have come in, and he's really feeling confident right now. So I like Tony Finau. He, he for sure fits what we talked about in terms of big guys who are capable of getting the ball down the down the pike. So does that rule out the Z spot? No, the Z spot is 10th in average driving distance. Great. Tenth on tour. Yes. I mean, he's not a giant guy. He is not. He's an efficient guy. And, you know, from the happy Gilmore days, he, he, he's channeled. I trust the Z spot in majors. As do I, with good reason. And he's played in seven majors um, since so, 2020. Lingers. Five top tens. Yeah, that's the reason why you trust him in the majors. That was one of our big masters bets, right? We had uh, we had some nice the Z spot on the with Z him spot. tied to a couple. Yeah, for sure. So Finau, the Z spot. I really like Shane Lowry um, for this. You know, I saw that. That was one of your guys, and I thought that was a good one because that was a little bit off the path. Big fat Irishman. Yeah, beloved. Will be beloved here. Get a ton of support. He's been playing the best, most consistent golf of his career. Tied for third at the Masters. Um, I like that one. I I like the Shane Lowry call. Okay. Well, so we, what was the big Fanduel bet? We have a we couple have? of them. The, the the two that that um we really put uh, a little bit of leverage into was Shane Lowry, Rory McIlroy, and the Z spot all to finish inside the top twenty. That one pays out at better than than plus four eighty five. That's nearly five to one odds on on that. All three of those guys to finish top twenty feels very, you know, possible, credible. Then you're getting you know decent return on that, and then. The big one that we put out today was so just, they so they boosted that to plus four forty three. It looks like oh well the the odds are moving a little bit. They they, oh. they were at four in their four eighties. So I mean right. it's not, I'm not so that there's been some action. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the one we we published today was uh, Tony Finau, the Z Spot, Will Zalatoris, and Rory just to make the cut. 
And if you look at the make the cut odds individually, they're there. It's like you have to pay minus 900 or something crazy for Rory. But you put those three together in a, in a make the cut parlay. And this is, I love the make the cut parlays because you cash Friday night. You have something good to go into right. the weekend. You with. get a little momentum. That's You're it. happy on Friday night. Big, that, and, and look, you might be in the, in the market for some happiness. So this would be a reason. Yeah. This could be an emotional hedge for you. That's a good one. You just go me. ahead and put this in. And then you you have your guys to root for when we walk around on Friday. That one was minus 125 if you just played it on normally. FanDuel boosted it up to plus 110 for us. So plus odds on those three guys. All they got to do is make the cut. So that, that those are our two big ones. Honestly, the biggest bet of all, and I have to ask you for a favor. I don't do this very often. I'd like to borrow, if I could, $3.1 million from you before midnight tonight so I can get a bet in. Phil Mickelson to miss the cut is minus 310. So if you lend me $3.1 million, I could win a million dollars on Phil Mickelson to miss the cut. The, the implied probability at, at minus 310 is around 76% to miss the cut. You want I me to wire it to you? I think it's I, wire would be great. I mean, we could go to the bank. We're in Boston. I bet you have a bank account here. But I think the, the implied probability of him to, to, to miss the cut is closer to 95%. I can't come up with a scenario. He hasn't played any competitive golf. He was 10 over par at the at the fake event that he just played outside of London. He here's, the, here's the counter. Go ahead. It's already so much fun to root against him in this tournament. Why do I need money on it? <laughs> well, why I'm not a- cash in on it? What kind of... You're, you're my my best degenerate buddy. Why why put money on it? What are you talking about? Oh, Can I ask you... All we do is put money on stuff. We're not betting on that. Can I... I am betting on that. Can I give you some winner odds that I was confused by and you can explain why they are confusing? I'll do the best I can. More cow is 32 to one, which seems high. What's going on with him? He um, has hit a little bit of a slump. He's had some performance stuff. Um, he, he, he confesses that he's a little bit off. He um, Does he talk to Frank Thomas? <laughs> Doug Flutie? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and she'll like it too. Will she like it too? She might like it too. I don't think that's <laughs> the issue. There's something going on with this swing. His ball striking okay. hasn't right, been so up to usual standards. I actually am not prepared to cross him off. Anytime you can get Colin Morikawa at that price, that you, seems too high. You need to go ahead and buy a little, just just to protect yourself. So you don't. It's schmuck insurance. Anytime you get Morikawa above thirty, uh, you got to go ahead and buy in a little bit, even though he's still like trying to find something. And Kepka's reached the um, fifty-five to one to win the U.S. Open stage of his career already. Man, it's insane. Only four dudes in the last five years have beat Brooks Kepka in the U.S. Open. Only four guys over, over this period because and he's coming higher second score or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yet the problem is we have no idea what's going on with him. It's there. There is there a, a health issue? Is there um, a life issue? Is he is his issue. jump? Is well? Is he about to jump over to the live tour? Mm. He he showed up to the press conference feisty. He missed the cut at the Masters. We had him because he was at a reasonable uh, price in the Masters. That one hurt by four putting on the twelfth green. On Friday, he was well inside the cut line, and all we wanted him to do was show up on Saturday and go do some stuff, do some Brooks Kepka stuff, and he's been terrible, really, since since Phoenix. Right, so he hasn't out. been good. You cannot convince me to cross Dustin Johnson off at forty four to one unless he's has an injury. I don't know about. No, I I already bet him. I, I bet forty four to one for yeah, him is ridiculous, right. especially what you laid out with the golf course. So he he that's right, and he just hasn't done it. You know, he did finish inside the top 10 at the Masters. Yeah. Uh, and some of that is like muscle memory for him, for sure. 
Um, his driver has has let him down a little bit. He doesn't have the same consistency that he used to have. He hasn't had any kind of sustained run since winning the Masters in the fall of 2020. Um, but he's still Dustin Johnson. He still has all that stuff. So at that price, so you go ahead and speculate a little bit. I think out of everything you just laid out, I think I'm going to do Shane Lowry at 30 to 1. Okay, that's great. I, 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 I like the fact that he's playing well. I like the Irish thing. I could say, I'm just trying to picture the headlines on Sunday. And it's like uh, adopted Irish son Shane Lowry right. wins the Masters. You imagine Masters. what pub is he going to? I mean, to? I went to the US Open. Right. He, where's he taking that trophy? He's just so Boston. Yeah, yeah right. He's exactly. the most Boston probably of any golfer we have in this. The re another, more, lots of reasons to, to like him. Uh, he finished second at Oakmont which is, uh, you know, uh, arguably the hardest, the most difficult U.S. Open. He He's good in, in challenging U.S. Opens. He's yeah. made the cut in six out of the last seven U.S. Opens. Um, and, and, you know, he, he's got all, all of his game. He plays well at hard venues. He almost won at PGA National earlier this year down in Florida. A rainstorm came out of nowhere, and he ended up not, not winning it. But, you know, he, he's, he went from... Uh, finishing tied for third at the Masters to almost winning the very next week up at Harbortown. He can play a lot of different golf courses, uh, and 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 he's the length of it is not going to be a challenge. He plays hard golf courses as well. Shane Lowry and the Boston Celtics. Oh, to win on Sunday. All right, win on Sunday. What about win on Thursday? No, I'm, I'm saying the Celtics to win the championship <laughs> right after Shane Lowry wins the championship. <laughs> On FanDuel is, uh, oh, you bet $100, you could win $12,610. Right. Yes, that's, that's what that A means. Shane Lowry, Boston Celtics. That's not like inconceivable. That's, that's the series price that yeah. for the Celtics. You the just Celtics, the ser Celtics series price. The Celtics are, yeah, they're plus, plus 310. 310. And Lowry's 30 to 1. There we go. Bang. The, the all Boston Father's Day weekend. Here in 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 in, in wicked pissable. Shane Lowry fucking won the match. He the US won. Open. Let's go Celtics. Celtics. Wow, that would be one. I could see the Shane Lowry thing. <laughs> so I think DJ at forty four to one is offensive. A lot of people could see the Shane Lowry thing. DJ at forty four to one is offensive. Okay, like, go ahead unless he's hurt. Put put a couple bucks on it then. Give me one more. Uh, I'm looking at my list. Harold you, Varner, the, the spot. Harold I mean, Varner at sixty five to one. No, no, that's a no. That's okay, a no. that's a strong no for me. No, we, we've, we've hit all, all the guys that I like. We, well, I Rory's 10 to 1, on. which is obscene. I said good things about Xander already. I like Willie Z. Rory, okay. you can't, you don't get any value on Rory. We went through the... Uh, um, How about handsome, handsome Tommy at 55 to 1? Um, not, not a terrible bet. Uh, played, he snuck into the top five at the PGA Championship. And there is, you know, I, I thought that PGA Championship played like a U.S. Open style um, golf course. You know, yeah. the, the winning score was just a few under par. It was a guy with a major, we've saying this on Fairway Rolling all week, a major brain. It was Justin Thomas, who'd already won a major. Tommy's been in in these U.S. Opens. I mean, he, he damn near won the one in Shinnecock. It required Brooks, you know, birdieing. I think it was, I don't remember. Uh, he, 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 I'm not going to recall the, the exact script, but, you know, Kepka had to fight off Fleetwood to, to keep him from winning it. So Fleetwood's got U.S. Open chops. All right, that's it. Tomorrow, one of the great sports days of your life. For I mean, sure. Jesus Christ, U.S. Open and Game 6 NBA Finals. Pretty good. It could be either be a great or a bad day for me. Could be a good 24-hour stretch. And um, 
now we're gonna go to um we're gonna go to a break and I'm gonna go feed house. I'm hungry. And throw some drinks in him and we'll be back on the one thousandth episode of the Bill Simmons podcast right after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time, that's usually about Five o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is gonna be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Okay, Brian Curtis is here from The Ringer. Nora Princiati is here from The Ringer. Just came off covering, a, you're at the Jets camp. I can't imagine a better way to spend a, a day in late June than Jets camp, Nora. Yeah, it was. It, it was a good time. Good good times out there in Florham Park, New Jersey. And he, does it just feel like there's some momentum? Some, uh, some, some good spirit at the Jets? What's going on? So I went in there feeling that way. And then um, Robert Sala got up there at, at his press conference and promptly said, uh, Zach Wilson shouldn't have to be Tom Brady, was his opening statement of the day, which I guess is true and probably helpful. But it was a little bit of a, oh, boy, here we go again. Um, but they had a nice they had a nice time. How are you feeling about Curtis's Cowboys? A little weird. Just a weird vibe to the Cowboys. I. I they feel like they should still be probably the best team in that division, but it also seems like every other team is going forward and they're, if anything, worse. You agree with that, Brian? Yeah, I'm not sure weird vibe with the Cowboys will even get the aggregators going. We just, Cowboy Nation kind of assumes weird vibe every year. We go I just there. walked by, when I was walking back to my apartment from the subway, I walked past like a, a sports center or whatever segment about will the Cowboys get Dak on the move more in in 2022 or whatever year it is, and you know, so <laughs> doesn't take a lot. Well, as Brian knows, every ESPN segment I would do if I ran first take is what is the difference between Dak and Kirk Cousins? Just let's <laughs> just tell me what it is. Same <laughs> stats, same record, same everything, same clutch. Like what? What is the difference? Except one has the Cowboys. I'm pretty sure they run that segment every day. Not same clutch. <laughs> same person. Um, speaking of the Cowboys, so the Herschel Walker trade, once upon a time, is widely considered the worst football trade of all time, right? It's the go-to. It's a little weird because I actually think the Ricky Williams trade was worse 
if you actually really look at <laughs> a team trading its entire draft and then a first and third in the next draft to take a running back, basically, which we would just never do that now. We don't value running backs the same way. It was crazy when it happened. Mike Dicko was making personnel decisions for the Saints. Everything about it was nuts. The The Vikings-Cowboys trade is a little more defensible because Herschel was so good at the time and he was just one of the greatest college football players ever. There was some... If you go back and read about the trade, there were some caveats with it, like... They had these four players, but there was language in there. If we cut the players, we get these extra picks. And the Vikings kind of got snookered in that. So anyway, it became the worst trade ever. I've been watching this Deshaun Watson thing like everybody else for the last few months. And then the Browns, they trade all of these picks for him. They guarantee his deal. And then Jenny Vrentis writes this excellent piece for the New York Times. Even more stuff comes out. I didn't feel good about the trade to begin with for Cleveland. I was amazed that people were fighting for each other to, to trade for him. Brian, this has to be the worst NFL trade anyone's ever made, right? I, like, I just can't imagine a bigger mistake ever made by a franchise. Yeah, and I would just say it's in a completely different category than any other, any other quote-unquote bad trade. This is, this is, we're, we're not talking football terms here, right? We're talking moral terms here. And yeah, uh, like I said, I just, I just think of it in a completely different category. Because it's not just, it's not just that they guaranteed money to somebody that we're not even sure if he can play this year or, or what he did stuff still coming out and all the picks that they gave up, but their fan base is absolutely repulsed. It seems like Nora, you've been following this, like, it's not just that this might have been a terrible football trade where they don't have this guy for a year and they got in bed with somebody who has all this baggage, but it, the fans are like disgusted by this. And I, it's weird to me they didn't see that side of it either. What's your read watching this from afar? Yeah, in a weird way, I'm encouraged that it does seem like the fan base is upset by this. I am a little bit, I really try not to be cynical. I'm a little bit bracing myself for whatever sort of reputation laundering tends to be fairly, unfortunately, easy to accomplish. I do think like Brian is so right to point out this belongs in a completely different category. There is a piece of it where I almost want to assess it in the same way where it's like, yes, we acknowledge we should absolutely acknowledge and spend time talking about how sort of like morally repulsive it is. I also want us to acknowledge how just recklessly stupid it was. And and seems like it may turn out to be like the cap numbers would be so crippling. Just the the sort of like lost in the wilderness place that that franchise would be in if the culmination of all their attempts to build like went wrong in this way. And it, it was so irresponsible the way that they didn't investigate it at all, didn't talk to anyone other than Deshaun Watson and his people that I'm kind of like this should be sort of indicted on both levels because it really, really, really was like uh, unprecedented in how just reckless the actions taken by what we tend to consider to be a really smart, like thoughtful front office. It, 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 if you cannot tell, it still like boggles my mind that this is happening. Yeah. The word would almost be impetuous. It seems like yeah. he he went to them and said, I'm going to do this Atlanta thing unless you guys make it worth my while. And within a day, they had guaranteed the entire contract. They gave up the three first rounders. I still can't believe Houston had any leverage at all with this, but 
Brian, the, the craziest piece of this. Now, Jenny Brentis, who uncovers all this other stuff. And the question is, how does an excellent New York Times reporter find all this new information about this case when the NFL, who's had, I don't know, seven, eight months to investigate this, the Browns, the Falcons, the other teams that are trying to trade for them, these are multi-billion dollar companies that can spend whatever they want to really find out, all right, what else is there? Let's, let's really, really dive into this. Let's spend millions of dollars trying to figure out how much of this is real. Is there more stuff? And yet Jenny Vrentis was the one who found all this stuff. The, 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 I, on one hand, I would think, all right, they're just incompetent. There's a cynical side to me that wonders, like, did the Browns just not want to find out anything? What do you think? Which one would you say? I think the latter is exactly what it is. Jenny wanted to find out the information and is skilled enough to find out the information. And the Browns wanted all of this to go away and still want all of it to go away. That's that's it, their only plan here <laughs> is for people to forget and for it to go away in some way that is yet undetermined. And she obviously has very, very different goals and motives. Do you think they make the trade if they know this stuff is coming out, Nora? Uh, honestly, I kind of do. Like, it's really hard for me to see why 22 is is not too many, but 24 is. And, and I think to to Brian's point, they didn't try. They it's it wasn't even like they sort of oh willfully like fuddled their way around and and didn't figure it out. They did not try to find out what the perspectives were of the massage therapist that Deshaun Watson went to for. Like, they did not ask. They did not talk to a single one of them. It, it's not even sort of like willfully blind. It's just they didn't make an attempt. And if that's not actively not wanting to find out, like one of the pieces of information that Jenny reported was that he got an NDA slipped into his locker when he was with the Texans by a security guy who worked for Houston who'd been in the secret service before he had that job. Like these teams have the resources to figure this stuff out. Jenny is an incredible reporter and did incredible work. But a lot of that stuff was like just getting documents and just making the effort to do it. It, it wasn't like, you know, this isn't like Watergate. Nobody slipped her a piece of paper that was super secret and nobody else was going to get it. it. She just tried. So from a media standpoint, Brian, this has been such a hard story to talk about, like in the universe we have, right? The content universe. And we look at stuff like, all right, this story, you're going to have takes one way or the other, or, or you're going to bring some sort of analysis or expert opinion to it, or try to make light of something. And then you have this story that nobody seems to have a, a real handle on all the facts. The Some of the stuff is still coming out. Watson didn't play all last year. He's maintaining his innocence, so you have to factor that part in. The the maintaining the innocence piece seems a lot flimsier, I think, than it that did before. Um, but then we have this day-to-day -day sports talk cycle, right? And this is the Cleveland Browns. This is a team that came within one game of the Super Bowl two years ago that made one of the biggest trades just from what they gave up out of anything. He's in the AFC with all these things. This is your specialty. How have you noticed it being covered from a day-to-day -day sense and what do you think has been missing? 
Well, I think that press conference that Watson gave this week was a pretty good example because there were some real doozies uh, asked to him. Maybe the biggest was, how are you holding up emotionally? How is Deshaun Watson holding up emotionally? Um, there were other questions about how do you get regain the trust of your teammates? What's different about Deshaun Watson today than was months or years ago? And what was so striking about that press conference to me is a lot of the hard work here, you're right, this, this story is unresolved in almost every possible way. But a lot of the hard work had been done by Vrentis in the New York Times. There had been a real sports segment. And what I would have loved to have seen out of that is reporters taking the very specific facts reported in those two uh, stories and saying, here they are, Deshaun Watson. What is your response to this? We got a little bit of that. But the question of the NDAs that Nora mentioned, not brought up in that press conference to my ears. Uh, Any of the specific things said in the real sports segment, not brought up to him. And instead, there were a lot of generalities and a lot of people that felt very unsure. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to indict the whole media, quote unquote, because as Nora's been a lot more of those than I have. And it's often one or two people who are not doing a great job and a lot of people doing a really great job and doing their best. But I would have liked to have heard a a lot more in terms of specifics. There was a tough Adam Schefter moment too when he had that tweet. And you realize like with stories like this, it's really hard to be in the 24-7, I'm just going to, here's my 250 character take on this, which I, I think has been, especially after he got rightfully torched for tweeting that in the first place, I think that has led to some hesitation as well. What, what else have you seen, Nora, from a media standpoint? Well, I think it is hard when people are tweeting and and sort of condensing information to reflect that there is and you know Deshaun Watson has continued to proclaim his innocence and say that nothing happened, but there's this real imbalance in specifics. So, one side there's all these women who are all offering consistent stories that have details that line up across all of these cases. And that as we're starting to see some reporting of what's been covered in various depositions, that'll be part of the case and part of the trial. That is something that is being focused on a lot is, okay, all of these instances, you know, he used this very small towel and said that that was important to him and and things that line up in patterns end up being, being very important to to lawyers and and when this is on trial. On his side of things, his lawyers are saying things to the New York Times like, when the truth comes out, when everything we know comes to light, you're going to feel differently and not offering what it is. And I think part of that is because in instances like when Deshaun's giving a press conference in Cleveland, nobody is pressing him. And another part of it is just that everything gets sort of diluted via Twitter. And once it's going sort of, you know, going up the the food chain of, okay, local reporter tweets something and then maybe ESPN aggregates and it all just gets generalized in a way that's pretty unhelpful because then you do end up reflecting something that something as sort of he said, she said when it's he said something very vague and then a couple dozen people said something fairly specific, which in court is a different, those are different things, right? That's going to be taken very seriously. And if he doesn't want that to be the case and his lawyers don't want that to be the case, they sort of have yet to offer 
the thing that would counterbalance that. But I think that gets washed out a lot of a lot of the coverage when questions like, well, how do you feel about all of this end up uh, being asked? Well, this this goes back to the worst trade topic. I just can't believe Cleveland willingly signed up for this. Because let's say let's say Jenny doesn't even write the piece. This is still like the biggest story of the year. And it's still, you know, it's pretty overwhelming amount of evidence against him in some form. And now it's even worse. And it's one thing if somebody's on your team and they're an employee and you're trying to figure out, all right, how do we handle this? We have this guy. What do we do? But to then to then not only go, ah, let's let's try to get this guy, but then guarantee all his money so that no matter how this plays out, you still have to pay him. I honestly, I think it's one of the most dumbfounding things I've ever seen in professional sports. I don't understand it. I, I think it's insane. And then on top of it, I mean, maybe I don't know if it's going to be half of their fan base that bolts this team or says screw this, but you know. People don't need sports the way they do. We, they used to. There's a lot of different ways to spend your time. And this is the kind of thing where they're going to they're gonna lose fans and antagonize their fan base over this in a way that I don't remember seeing in sports before, Brian. I thought one of the interesting moments in that press conference was Deshaun Watson going out of his way to say several times how he had ventured into the community of Cleveland and had positive interactions with fans. Almost yeah. like it was, you know, I mean, think about this. The quarterback of the football team is having to assure the press that he has gone out and found supportive fans in the community. Normally, that would right. be every quarterback in the NFL, or at least every good quarterback. And he he actually used the face, or phrase, excuse me, show my face in the community, which was an interesting one for me. But he said, I went to the movies. I went to restaurants like that. And to me, again, he was obviously very, very coached before he went out and made all these statements. But but I picked up on that and thought that was interesting. This is, Nora, this is the culture of football, right? Like, it's 53-man rosters, and there's going to be a couple guys every season where you, where you look at something that happened with them and you go, ugh, that's not great. And the sport has always been able to kind of move forward with, with whatever whatever happened with the person. This seems like as much as we push the line. Yeah, especially because it could cut both ways, right? Like this is some this is some pretty disturbing stuff. Plus the football implications of a big suspension would really really hurt the team. And so it cuts both ways, right? Like there's there's good guys on the roster who would feel uncomfortable working with someone who they believed had done these things. There's also a lot of guys on the roster who wouldn't enjoy having gone to a team or been thought they were part of a team that had really high hopes and big expectations and then was suddenly just like totally in the wilderness. And both of those things, I, I think, have pretty tough impacts on just how they work together, how they work with him if they end up doing that at some point, whether it's years to come or not. But it, 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 they have these guys continuously surprise me by how much they can kind of just like put their heads down and do stuff. But I, I, this just seems like it has to be a little different. Well, and then you have the whole, the history of Goodell and the NFL and how they've handled a lot of the stuff, you know, veering into the, the domestic range. Ray, Ray Rice, most famously, how much that was botched and what a disaster that was. And 
I still don't feel like they've gotten enough shit for that whole year and how bad that was. Now, it was eight years ago. But in this case, Goodell has, he's still the commissioner. He still has the baggage of all these different ways he's botched situations like this. So my assumption would be that he's going to get suspended for the year. But I, who knows? Like, you could tell me it's going to be a four-game suspension. I, with the NFL, everything's on the table, right? I don't, I don't think anybody can predict how they're going to handle something like this because they've been all over the map. Can't predict it and don't really understand how you even translate allegations of really disgusting, gross behavior into game suspended in this case. Right. It's always, it's always, but I, I, I don't even know where to start with that. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you would look at and be like, well, that's the right suspension. That's the right, that's the right answer to this question. I have absolutely no idea. So how do, how does the story get covered going forward? Because I, I think what we've seen in the past was stuff that's really ugly. People look at sports for an escape. They look at it as, you know, they, they just want to watch games and root for their teams. And they realize that with stories like this, that's part of the price of this, but they don't want it to like dominate how they follow sports, right? But in this case, this is a really important story. And I think there's like a give and take. How much do you cover it? How much do you talk about it? Are there angles to even talk about it? I, I think it's been just really awkward the last couple months. And it feels like as we get closer to the season, Nora, like, it's going to continue to be awkward. It's going to be the elephant in the room personified for this whole season until at least some suspension happened. But what would you like to see going forward with this story? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think there are judgments that individual reporters can make for themselves because in a lot of ways, the the Browns roster is interesting. There's a lot going on there. That team has been, you know, one that we've talked about a lot over the last few years. I will be blunt. They are completely non-interesting to me from a football perspective. I cannot get over it. I cannot think about anything else. I don't yeah. think that I like watching their games does not seem pleasant to me in any way. Like I would much rather I'd watch Texans Jets before I watched a Browns game right now, just from a pure enjoyment perspective. Um, it just seems like it overrides everything. Uh, now if somebody didn't feel that way and felt like, okay, there's, there's cool stuff going on with the other people on the roster and I'm into that, I would think that was totally justifiable. I, I just embraced a little bit for the degree to which in one moment we can feel like, oh, this is a huge story and we're never going to get over it. And stuff changes really fast and being really good at football and winning football games can help it change very fast. I really, really try not to be cynical about this stuff, but I'm a little bit like, I, I did not think that he would be signed and he signed for an unprecedented amount of guaranteed money. So I just would take it with a grain of salt. Well, now the season's 10 weeks, it's like 10 or 11 weeks away and basketball's yeah. about to end. We're going to have the draft and free agency and then we hit that dead spot where it's just like, all right, football, what do we got? What are the angles? And this thing is just going to hang over uh, Hang over everything, right, Brian? Before we uh, put a bow on this, what uh, any anything you want to see from the coverage going forward? Well, uh, I think Nora's cynicism is extremely justified. <laughs> it's been justified at every single part of this story. I think one thing we can do, uh, if I can speak for the whole sports media here, is keep in our minds that we don't know everything. You know, reading Jenny's article. The biggest takeaway for me was that, boy, there's a lot more out here that is yet to be discovered about this story. 
a lot more out here. The other thing I'd say is, you know, I love the world we live in where football is consumed through fantasy and gambling and things like that. But I think those things often have a way of flattening out stories like this and making you forget what's really at stake here. So I'm okay not doing Browns over under win totals for a while. Uh, I'm okay without doing backup plan at quarterback on my fantasy team if Deshaun Watson and if and when he gets suspended. <laughs> I'm sure that will take place somewhere in the universe. But I think with a story that's this serious and this complicated, that often makes us just forget what it's all about. All right. Before we go, I, can we end on a semi-happier note? Just for my sanity. Let's do it. I mean, skinny Mac Jones, Nora. I know you've seen it. <laughs> the, the, I don't. Okay. Just, s- such a more pronounced jawline now. Just supposedly yep, there's yep. a hint of a six pack saying all the right things. All the quotes, more of a leader this year. That's a positive story. Skinny Mac Jones. A hint of a six pack, a wi- a whisper of tone and depth. Whisper. Yeah, it's very so- exciting, Bill. It's very, very exciting. I'm sure great things are to come for for young Mac. He's growing oh, up thanks, before Tom. our eyes. So we got skinny Mac Jones, Brian. We have, I would assume Trevor Lawrence will be more fun to watch this year than he was last year with the sociopath as his head coach. Uh, that'll be fun. What What else are you looking forward to? Tyreek on the on Miami and whether I guess we we're gonna find out once and for all whether two is good. Was it- that? Wasn't Mac Jones just always poorly served by his shoulder pads, at least at Alabama? Didn't he have that's the, what 70s, the 70s shoulder pads? Wasn't that with part of this? so much love to, to Mac, and with all due respect, the answer to that question is no. That is not the only reason. <laughs> not, I didn't say only reason. I just said somewhere <laughs> there's some big shoulder pads in there that make well, me feel like John Facenda should be narrating his footage. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's fair. I, I do think they were ill-fitted shoulder pads. I agree with Brian. Then from Brian's standpoint, nothing more fun than just networks talking about how much they spent on people. <laughs> oh, we spent this. Joe <laughs> Buck and Trey Aikman, $35 million combined. <laughs> Amazon's like, watch this. Our announcer's really worth it? My column. Studio show. Is this the one that's going to crack the code? <laughs> Got that whole thing. The Thursday night studio show. Has there been a good NFL studio show since Brent and Phyllis and Irv? Uh, we had one. Fox NFL Sunday early years. Going there, okay. going there with me. So like mid 90s Fox? No, I'm not tuning into a lot of it. No. NBC's like, we give up. Drew Brees has sucked the life out of us. Jason We've Garrett. Him with Jason Garrett. <laughs> Jason Garrett is our guy. We never thought I'd see the day. If you showed me that, here's a headline from the future. Jason Garrett on football night in America. No, no way. We've hired, we've hired Chris Collinsworth's son and Jason Garrett. We have given up. <laughs> and then Amazon, Richard Sherman's one of the people they get. And then he's like, but I haven't retired yet. So wait, how's that going to work? So you're going to be on the Thursday night show, but you haven't retired yet. Okay. But I actually, uh, they got Carissa. Who was the one? Not, not Tony Gonzalez. Who was the other one they got? Oh, uh, Fitzpatrick. I think he's going to be good. I do too. I'm buying Fitzpatrick stock. You've interviewed him, right, Nora? Yeah. He's just fun. Yeah. He he's passes fun, the dude. interview kind of charisma test, which I think you kind of have to have if you're going to do that job. But it's funny it seems like in basketball, we're just churning out new guys, like two, three new guys every season now. And in football, we have not had the same 
success, but fit, maybe Fitzpatrick would be it. Why is that, Brian? Yeah, we just need new faces. I mean, really, the whole announcer free agency thing was largely just moving people around. So right. I'm all for new f- f- faces everywhere. I think it's fun that Joe Buck has finally gotten uh I think that everybody has just arrived that ah, I like Joe Buck. Like even he signs that big contract. Nobody was mad at it. Nobody's like, oh, fuck Joe Buck. This is ridiculous. People are like, yeah, it's more fun when Joe Buck announces a game. I remember when I wrote about him on the first day of the ringer, which yeah. was a while back. I felt like I was kind of walking out on the ledge, you know? Right. It was, you were like in take land. It was 20, summer 2016. Like you wrote yeah. about Joe Buck. You're right about Joe Buck. Yeah. Do you see him and him and Troy, you guys in the yellow old school Monday night football oh, yeah. blazers? Those are totally coming out this season. They're leaning it's, in. The move, like Mike Breen, who didn't play it intentionally, but he got COVID and he gets replaced by Mark Jones. And you almost need something like that when you're the reliable play-by-play guy to be replaced by somebody else. And people are like, where's Mike Breen? That was a great game. I wish Mike Breen had been there for that. So I feel like Buck has... Hit that. I do like Kevin Burkhart though. I think he's going to be good. I, yeah. I think for Fox, it's like, you know, I think they'll be fine. I still to not have uh, the famous lead person is a little weird, even though I like Greg Olson. There's some, something about having that famous quarterback or the famous whoever standing next to the play by play guy. I still feel like it matters. I had Breen on the podcast this week, plug. And mm. we were talking about 2006 when he called his first NBA finals. You remember this? Replaced Al Michaels. And there was a real who is Mike Breen vibe in America <laughs> so much that he was mistaken for Brit Hume at a restaurant here oh, in wow. Los Angeles. He also told me he'd been mistaken more recently for Mike Pence. So I, I think that's what Fox is in, right? There is a kind of who, wait, who are these guys again? You know, who's Kevin Burkhardt again? And who's Greg Olson? But then people will watch and be like, oh, yeah, I like these guys. I like yeah, these you, just like they did. You with get Breen. a year. Yeah, you get a year. To milk that. Before we go, Nora, you you moved to New York. Any uh any New York sports takes early on? Well, so I, I've I've fallen in love with the New York Rangers, um, who sort of by process of elimination, uh I, I decided were I really wanted to become a, a fan of a New York sports team. And certain ones were just sort of out of the question. But the Rangers, uh, my best friend's family is is chock full of huge Rangers fans and gone to a bunch of games with her. The games are fun to go to. A lot of what's motivating this is if I do indeed settle here permanently, I would like a team that I could root for with my future children who are not at all imminent. I want to be very clear. And uh, (laughs) they go on this very excited. Like, you know, sometimes my mom listens and it's just like a whole thing. Um, But someday in the very far off future, the New York Rangers uh, seemed like the best bet for that. And, um, you know, this is the first season that I've lived here and they go on this like quasi magical fun run. It's a super young team that has been rebuilding and it kind of felt like this is a great season if they make it out of the first round and they ended up getting within spitting distance of the Stanley Cup finals. But I I was at game five and uh, um, a fight broke out in the section next to me. And I t- turned away for like one second and um, they gave up uh, what ended up being the decisive goal. And I was watching some dude get punched in the face and thrown out by security. Geez. So <laughs> Hockey. Hockey. Gotta love it. 
it was I told like all my friends about, oh, there was this huge fight. And then it turned out that there had been like four or five different huge fights. And there were all of these different like, no, it wasn't that one. Nope. Still wasn't that fight. Still wasn't that fight. But, you know, we'll get him next year. Brian, I think I like that choice of the Rangers for her. Yankees, obviously, you can't do that. I mean, no you way. just can't. Mets, Mets, you don't want you don't want your kids to just grow up hating you and themselves, which I think is how that plays out. Same thing for the Knicks. Brooklyn, come on. No chance. Um, I like being reminded about New York Rangers fandom. You know, these fan bases that just you're like, oh, those guys. You're right. Because they, you know, they're on a run this year, and all of a sudden, Twitter. Here we yeah. go. Rangers. Yeah. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, there you there you are. Yeah, it's I was thinking if the NBA ran the NHL, we absolutely would have had Rangers versus Edmonton. So they could have had the Rangers versus McDavid. Scott Foster's <laughs> refereeing <laughs> at least two of the last three games of the Rangers Tampa series to try to make it uh make it happen. But yeah, this is what always seems to happen with the NHL. Whatever the ideal series is, it never happens. And now they have Tampa going for a three-peat, which literally nobody cares about. And Colorado over Connor McDavid, who's the guy that they need to get behind. Then you look at like the NBA who has Steph Curry back in the limelight, you know, and this fun Golden State Warriors team against Boston with all these young guys that they can now establish. And now the hockey fans are going to be mad. Well, you don't understand Stamkos. Stamkos, we're the clutch guys of his generation. <laughs> I just hate Tampa Bay. I mean, they they wax the Bruins, but uh, yeah, not one of my favorites. All right, this was fun. Curtis, Nora, uh, great to see you. Nora, we'll see you at the Jets practices. Oh, yeah. Who's the Jets backup this year? Uh, Matt, Mike White, Mike White. Oh, our guy, it's Mike White. It's the famous four touchdown, Mike White. Mike White, Sean Fennessy has a famous text that I screenshotted about saying he might think Mike White might be better than Zach Wilson. There was like that one week, remember? It's like, are we sure he's not better? But I think we're sure. Anyway, uh, <laughs> all right. Thanks for being part of the thousandth episode of the BS Podcast, by the way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very excited. Yeah. Very low fanfare. You know, we're not, we're not like a big pat ourselves in the back. But yeah, thousandth episode. Uh, good to see you guys. This episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. If you're anything like me during a busy day of work, I need lunch that is just as fresh as it is delicious and easy. And the all new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell is exactly that. Made with high quality ingredients like seasoned slow roasted chicken, pico de gallo, shredded purple cabbage, and avocado verde salsa sauce. The new Cantina chicken tacos, burrito, and quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina chicken menu at Taco Bell now. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. Okay, Bill Hader is here. He was on the 500th episode. This is the 1,000th episode. He's also not just the star of Barry and the creator directs it and all that stuff, but more importantly, was on the Prestige TV podcast, Breaking Down, each episode, <laughs> director's commentary. This is your dream. It's so funny. You loved, you loved uh, No Country for Old Men. 
you did the rewatchables with us on that. We talked about the tone. And even when you're doing season one of Barry and you're like the Coen brothers, big influence in that movie. And this season three, I, I know this probably wasn't your number one thing that you wanted out of it, but it's how it played out. This felt like, it felt like it was in that vein. It felt like a Coen brothers type of season, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the Coen brothers, I mean, it's like anybody that has a massive influence on you when you're young, that it, it just is in there. It's like even, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's like when I was at SNL and people go, Oh, you're like Phil Hartman or whatever. It's like, Oh, I just grew up watching Phil Hartman. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, right. you, you know, it's just in there, you know, it's, you don't even realize you're, you're maybe doing it. And so it's just so influential. It's been ingrained in you, but, uh, and like certain movies are that way and stuff. So for sure, um, I actually funny it was it wasn't so much No Country for Old Men, but the thing we did watch beforehand was Burn After Reading. Some of the mm. uh, uh, coverage that they did in Burn After Reading, where you're watching a scene and then you don't realize, oh, the camera hasn't they haven't cut yet. This has all been one shot, but it's one kind of stationary shot where actors are kind of taking each other's marks and stuff like that. And it was really interesting, but. Um, Carl Hersey, the DP, is a big um, Colin Brothers fan, too. So I'm sure we both were. I mean, we were shooting on a 27 millimeter lens, which then Carl knew was like, that's their lens for close-ups. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, now, I'm, now we're really being lame. Yeah, I feel like if I ever if I saw one of them, I would have to write them a check. No, but that's the thing. It's the generations, the next one comes, and they're influenced like the previous one. Like, writers are like that. The comedians are obviously like that. And yeah, it's, totally. yeah you, you kind of become an amalgam of eight to nine people that you loved when you were trying to figure out how to do something. I, what's interesting about this season, the whole comedy drama thing was always I, a stupid debate with Barry because people always like to put something in a box and be like, well, this is what this is. And then we have the awards yeah, piece that totally. has it. I always felt like it was just a show. And I guess it has to, when you do award stuff, it, it has to get thrown into a bucket because that's how we do this stuff. This year, like, I don't, I don't even know how it gets submitted to a comedy thing because that wasn't the intention of the show. Like, I know you don't care about that, but it, it's almost like we need this third category of just like, this is just a show. We're not, we're not, we're not comedy. We're not a drama. We're not anything. We're just over here. I think it's, I always say that I think the show is a comedy because it's 30 minutes, you know, but yeah, we're always just from the get go. It's always just been a story, you know, it's, it's never, there's funny aspects of it. And then there's aspects of it that are not very funny and more dramatic, but we never think of it in those terms while we're writing it. It just kind of presents itself where, and sometimes you have a scene that's dramatic. And then as we're rehearsing it or talking about it, it turns into a funny scene you know, and then vice versa, we'll have something really funny and we go, God, this is really undercutting the whole scene. Let's just take, and that, that happened a lot in the finale where we tried to have some jokes at the top and, and it, that episode, it was just, you know, it spit it out like, ugh, you know, it just did not want it. It just undercut the whole thing. So we just took it all out. I think the 30 minute thing's a good point because one of the reasons I like Barry is it's not a typical show, right? And as we have more and more shows, I think people are trying to figure out how to swim against the stream of what people expect in a lot of ways, right? If this was an hour-long show, people would clearly not see it as a comedy and they would 
almost right. process it differently. Yeah. The half hour just makes people think, especially because it's you, you're from SNL. But I think this was the year people realized, oh, this is whatever, whatever I thought, throw that out the window. I also feel like, I don't know, the show was always headed to go to a much darker place. I don't know how much the pandemic played into that. I know you were writing at least a little bit during the pandemic, right? Yeah, I mean, and not just during the pandemic, but just so much stuff happening during the pandemic that was, you know, not just intense for me, but our writers. I mean, you know, it was a weird thing when the pandemic happened. All this stuff rose to the top for people, you know? And I feel like that, uh, you know, that's why you heard like relationships were falling apart and, you know, people were having it out with their parents in ways they never had before. It was like, Everybody had to stop, you know, and all this shit came up. And so sometimes those writer's room things would turn into like little therapy sessions, you know, and I'm sure by osmosis, it's not like a specific thing was said, but kind of by osmosis, it just ended up in there. It didn't really hit me until we were showing the episodes to people and people, like had a couple of people be like, I feel like this is kind of about the pandemic, you know, or kind of about the way the world was or is, you know. Uh, our country and things like that. And I go, Oh, I, I, I've never approached stories with like an agenda, but my favorite kind of stories are about that. That stuff seeps in, you know, I mean, you talk about no country for old men. It's, it's in that for sure. You know, we have to, now we're going to do spoilers because it's been three days. If people haven't oh, seen yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Dude, well, I'm, put, I'm putting this last in the podcast so that if, uh, if people haven't seen it yet, they can just stop and come back. Um, did you always know this ended with him getting arrested? I know you talked about it with Sean, but let's talk about it here just for my audience. Yeah, yeah. That was the first day of writing. We said, you know, first episode is him throwing Kusno in a trunk and Kusno, you know, confronting him. Like, I know you killed Janice and I'm going to take you to jail. And then the gun falls apart. Mm. And, and then at the end of the season, he's able to fulfill that promise, you know? So it was always bookended with that. And that, that was first day of writing. We, we knew that. Is it easier to do a show when you know how the season's going to end? I would assume then at that point, every decision you make is probably a little easier because now at least you know, you know where you're heading. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, you, you know that. And then, but, but at the same time, you're also kind of going, well, it might not be that, but let's write towards it, you know? And the one nice thing, it, it let you burn stuff in a way where, um, meaning, oh, it doesn't matter that people are starting to figure out who Barry is. You know, it, it allowed us to have that opening episode where now Kusuno knows. You know, I, I know so many people I talk to and they go, I know what's going to happen in season three. It's going to be this big cat and mouse thing with you and Kusuno and you got, you're going to be in his class and he's going to try to trick you and stuff like that. And and I just was like, oh, no, that, that's so boring. <laughs> I just, I just, it's filler. It's like, let's just get to it. He knows, you know, he's in the trunk of a car. He's fucked. <laughs> you know, like, let's get this show on the road. You know? But knowing that where it was headed helped. But we also always have the, the ability to, to say, hey, if we get to episode eight and it just doesn't feel right, then, you know, pull back. You know? Right. Or do it. Later, like do maybe later we don't do it at the end of the season. Yeah, I mean that we're writing season four now, and that's happened three times now, where we're like, "Oh, we're writing towards this," and then we kind of start to get there, and it's like, actually, you know what? 
you don't really need that right now. It could go here, you know, or it's actually not that it's this, you know, and it's interesting. The most upsetting thing to me is I feel like there's no going back now. My dream for Barry was always that he was going to get into sketch comedy (laughs) and eventually end on Saturday Night Live. And then it was it was all Lorne or the Lorne character was going to become basically replace Henry Winkler as the cat and mouse guy. Story. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Bear's becoming a sensation, but he's got this whole hidden past. I don't know. I felt like you could have done a lot of uh, twisting around your SNL yeah. experience, but now that's out the window. That's not happening. No, yeah, I think he's. Uh, yeah, he's, there's too much too much trauma with that guy, and and uh, you know this this season was always about consequences, and you know you what I like is that and we you know, we said this from the beginning is that Janice Moss gets killed at the end of season one. And it, and so many people were giving us notes going, why are you guys still talking about Janice Moss in season two? Like that's done with. And it's like, no, no, no. When someone dies, <laughs> it affects people, a ton of people forever. Yeah. Know? And so it, it was just trying to, to show that, that even by the end of season three, you still were, you know, the last shot is about that loss, you know? And, and my hope with Barry was always that you could sit back and view it, you know, as one big story. You know, my dream was always thinking of like some, you know, somebody who's into, you know, wanting to learn about storytelling and filmmaking, like the stuff I was into growing up, you know, someplace could sit down, put on episode one of Barry until whenever we finish it. And it just feels like a big story without, um, oh, the season where this happened or this happened or, you know what I mean? It just, it was, it was more kind of like the books I grew up reading, you know, where, and, um, or, or, you know, those kind of classic kind of like, you know, Dickens or, I remember my third daughter was born. I read uh, Anna Karenina and that was right when we were kind of starting the pilot. And I was like, this is really good, but it all feels like one big story and it's pretty great. And I was reading it because, you know, uh, Maggie, my wife at the time was reading it and I was like, all right, I'll read Anna Karenina with you. And I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is phenomenal, you know, and I loved it. And it had a weird influence on Barry, I think, in terms of like, oh, it'd be amazing to do a whole series that feels like this, where it feels like a really contained story, but that's epic, you know. The last shot is pretty haunting, too. I I thought the cool thing about the last episode, it really landed the plane. Because there was like about midway through season three, I'm like, all right, they're trying to do a lot here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how is this... How are they going to resolve this? And then by the end, I was like so satisfied with all of it. And then you have like the great twist, which we're going to spoil for the people who haven't seen it yet. But we, yeah. you know, it's like, oh my God, they, 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 they caught Barry. Yeah. 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 They, what's yeah. happening? You hear the voice and you're like, wait, what? And then all of a sudden you see the yeah. SWAT guys coming out. It is, it was so good. It was such a, oh my God moment. And I, you know, I'm sure you're making the show the impact of that as you're just in the process of it, you probably lose what the impact's going to be like on the average viewer, but holy shit. I mean, that was so well done. Oh, so much of that too. You learn about like, um, point of view and it 
And I think what helped in that sequence and thinking about it, it was, oh, let's make it very subjective to Barry's point of view, you know? So that's why it's these really tight close-ups and then him looking, you know, you're following his gaze. You're getting the information as he's getting the information, you know? You know what it was like? It was like Halloween when they would they would have the camera with Michael Myers and you could kind of see him <laughs> scouting at the babysitters. Yeah, you're going like, to put his, a big his, mask over the... yeah. But it, it was interesting not to go, you know, try to go objective with it. You had to kind of stay with him. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and then just little accidents happen, like that shot of the SWAT guys coming out of darkness. Initially, that backyard was lit and they brought those SWAT guys out and they went, oh, my gosh, their uniforms are so dark. And I heard someone go, oh, the uniforms are so dark, they're going to blend in. And I went, that's not bad. That's good. Like, cut the lights. Everybody cut the lights. And Carl Hersey and I, we cut all the lights and then had them come out. And we all went, oh, that looks great. You know, it's, it, you know, so it's one of those things where you're constantly, you know, on the hunt for, for what will enhance this moment, you know. What, uh, so the show goes up. What's it like for, like, people in your life? Like, are people just texting you, like, Oh my God. Or like, what, ha what's it like to create a show like this? And then you throw it out in the world and then people finally see it. What's your um, life like for that next 12 hours? Yeah. I mean, you get texts from people, you know, I'm not on social media or anything like that. So it's like, it kind of trickles in from friends, you know, like, Oh, people like it, you know? And, and that's always, you but know. what about friends in your life though? They must be hitting you up, right? Oh yeah. You know, you'll just get like, Oh, it was great. Or like, you know, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, say, tell me more. Can you send me a 500 word text about how great, they're, great it was? Uh, usually get, yeah, just holy shit. Or like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I texted you. I was like, that was great. <laughs> yeah, it was just all exclamation points or like, you know, someone I'll wake up and there was just a couple, but not, it's not like my phone goes crazy. You know, I was sitting there watching a movie while it was airing. I was I was at home watching a movie and then it was kind of by myself. And then it was just like, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's it's 7.30. So that means on the East Coast, it's 10.30. So I guess it's it's airing, you know, it just aired. And my dad and my sisters sent really nice texts. And, and then, yeah, every once in a while, it was like a fuck. What the fuck? Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude. Or like... You know, you wrote yourself into a corner with this one, bro. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, watched a really good movie called The, the Devil's at the Doorstep. I think it was called. It was great. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I was, yeah, that's what I was. But, but you know, my, my, my thing has always been just, you know, we're in season four. That's awesome. Now let's focus on season four, try to make sense out of it. Your phone's probably like what my phone is like after the Celtics winning game seven. <laughs> Dude, whoa. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Fire emoji. <laughs> just whoa, like just the text God. coming in. Jesus. Um, oh my God. They took it for years. <laughs> well, you don't have to confirm or deny. In fact, don't. Because you don't want to spoil season four in any way. But I'll just tell you where my head's at. If, if we go, if season four is just a prison 
prison drama. If it's basically Oz season four with Barry, I'm all in. So I don't know if, okay. if you're still okay. scared. <laughs> Putting okay. Barry in a penitentiary, I'm all in. If you, uh, you okay. always have that oh, in your good. back pocket. Good. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way we've always written it is you just have to go like scene by scene going like what would happen and what's interesting and and yeah, so um, you have a lot of options. You know, yeah, we have some we have some options, but it's just interesting to see how people have changed since that finale because that finale changed a lot of the characters. So it, it was almost I can say writing season four is it, it, at times feels like writing a different show because it's like wow these characters are very different, you know. So that that's been exciting. You know, well, you at least get to be in person with people as you're writing this now, right? Because you during the pandemic, bit. you were little zoom, the zoom writing's not as much, yeah, fun. yeah. We were in person a little bit, but we didn't get a lot of writing done because we're trying to write season four and then we had to do all these reshoots for season three. And I had this writer's room and I just was like, uh, okay, everybody go home, I'll let you know when I'm ready. And it was like, we never met, and so we didn't mm-hmm. really start writing season four. Well, then we reread season four what we had so far, I would say when the show premiered, so in April, and then I realized, oh, this doesn't work. So we scrapped it. (laughs) Mm. And so I've been just basically the way I I tend to, I think writer's rooms work differently. The way it worked on Barry, the way it's kind of slowly happened is it's usually me talking to people, you know, ad nauseum, talking to one writer and then talking to another writer and then I'll get those two writers on a FaceTime or Zoom and then we sit and talk and it's it's and then I'll call a third writer and go, well, here's what we were talking about. What do you think of this? And then I kind of like wrap my head around it and then I write something and then I just send it to people and go, what is this? How's this feel? You know, and they'll go, that was good. That was good. Not into this. I'm confused, you know? Um, and then I go back to the drawing board and that's kind of, my process on season four so far. I hope you've had enough time to watch NBA though. Oh yeah. I mean, that's kind of the respite is Gavin Klein topped the first AD and Duffy Boudreaux, my best friend and producer co-writer of the shit show. You know, we just, that's like our, uh, like, Oh, it's playoffs. You know, <laughs> now it's not like we could just sit back and watch basketball. But, uh, yeah, man, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, I don't know what's going to happen for you guys. I'm starting to get after uh, nine straight weeks of playoff games, which every round has been tense. I'm starting to get the Barry look on my face. Yeah. I'm, you know what? I'm still kind of slow with it too. I'm still kind of, my head's still like, I can't believe Phoenix. And I just, that's, I was ready for Phoenix golden state. I was just like, well, this is going to be, I'm interested to see how this goes. Cause they have the same kind of swagger, you know? And then it was like, you know, it, that totally surprised me. And then, yeah, man, it's just, I don't know, Golden State's deep, dude. <laughs> yeah. The problem for us is they're getting better as the series gets along and yeah, the Celtics are getting worse, which is never, I never know, good. I, that's why I would be nervous. You could Seth had a bad game and they were still like, Wiggins showed up, like all these people started showing up and then you're like, fuck, dude, they're just... But those are the guys that I'm texting with and then I'll put it down and I'll be working or I'll, you know, be with one of my kids or something. And then I'll be just the text going like Wiggins exclamation point. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Bill Simmons is bombed. <laughs> we were looking so good up to one. Um, I'm getting a lot of like Tatum. I'm getting more. 
<laughs> sorry, to, sorry to tell you. <laughs> Are there have there been any good and been any good uh, impressions sitting there for you that you wish you had had an outlet to do as you're watching all this sports and culture stuff? Is there anybody that you're like, oh man, I would have, I would have loved to have uh, no, done that no, one. John, John, John Mulaney and I were doing the. We were watching that Johnny Depp trial a little bit. And we were doing Johnny Depp. And we were laughing about that. He had a funny idea, which made me laugh, which was a game show where you had to guess. The contestants had to guess what the next word Johnny Depp was going to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything's on the table. Well, he's just, well, he's very... What I saw was very horrid, despicable... Unimaginable. And then, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, <laughs> scary, you know, frightening. Ah! <laughs> but we were doing that on a lot of calling each other and being like, I had no idea. But John, John, of course, is one of the funniest guys on the planet. So he was making me laugh through that whole fight. He was like, hey, it's day three of the trial. Johnny Depp's got sunglasses on. He knows he's doing good. <laughs> it's trial correspondent. Trial correspondent. But we were just, yeah, his cadence. Mulaney and I have been doing a lot of just going, Kimberly, like just that thing. That rhythm was making us laugh. It's funny when you think of like the, the weirdest A-list celebrities we've churned out the last 40 years. It seemed like Cruz had it locked down there for a little while, and then just other people made runs. And now it's oh yeah, it's become like the it's become the eighties with Bird and Magic and MJ. Where yeah, right. He thought Cruz had it locked up. Now Cruz, Cruz seems pretty normal now. Like he yeah, released Top Gun, normal. and he and Cruz I, is like got it back. Yeah, I gotta tell you, man, Mike, he's a genius because I took my kids. You know, my kids. We saw a Top Gun Maverick movie. They freaking loved it, and now. When they're at my house, all we're doing is watching Tom Cruise movies. I've watched every single Mission Impossible with them. I even watched a I watched Oblivion with my oldest daughter. They just want to watch Tom Cruise movies, and I'm like, dude, that guy's. And I enjoy all of them. I'm having a blast watching. Like he's really good. You know, he is. Yeah, he's a 40 year library now. If you go back to risky business, yeah, he's he's very very shrewd and really smart and. And we sit afterwards and watch the YouTube videos of like the stunts he's actually doing. And, and that's now led to me going like, oh, you guys like that? Well, here's Jackie Chan, you know, and like selling some right. stuff. And then they're like, dad, do you do that? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> that's like Barry always says, a helmet or a mask on. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. People go, oh, that motorcycle chase was awesome. I was like, I'm, I was never on a motorcycle. Mike. My 88-year-old grandmother, I talked to her and she goes, I watched that episode and I said, I saw that. I said, there's no way in hell Billy got on that motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have to. Plus, you're a tough person to, uh, person to find a stunt match for, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. It's got like be tall, skinny, you got to have like long well, arms. Now I got, I mean, during season three, I, you know, I had the, the, the COVID weighed on and I just kind of owned it. So it was like, I had like kind of a frog body. It was like big gut, <laughs> skinny arms and legs, <laughs> you know, but uh, now nah, the guy, they, I mean, they got was amazing. And, 
and a, and a really sweet guy. So, I mean, yeah, that whole sequence made me sick to my stomach because they were actually splitting lanes and stuff. And I was like, all those are pretty much one take because we would do it. And I'm like, all right, we're good. We don't have to do that right. again. They're like, oh, we want to do it again. I'm like, no, 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 no more. <laughs> what, um, what's your favorite piece of content this year so far? What do you mean? Uh, Movies, TV, anything. Oh, comedy, comedy special. Oh. I was, I'm always interested oh. in what what you become obsessed with. Oh, um, other than Top Gun Maverick. Other than Top Gun Maverick, uh, what have I been watching? Um, I watched a really good movie that I, I enjoyed uh, called "You Were Not My Mother," which was a horror movie from Ireland. I liked that one a lot. Mm. Um, and uh, comedy wise, I mean. I think you should leave. I thought it was hysterical. I think anything Nathan Fielder does is hysterical. Um, but mostly, dude, I'm like... You're watching a lot of movies with your kids, aren't you? I watch a lot of movies with my kids, but I watch a lot of old stuff. Like, I just watch a lot of old movies, and I watch a, you know... Um, you know, I read this Sam Fuller book, uh, his autobiography, so I went back and watched a lot of those. Um, kind of went on a whole, like... I, I, I love this movie that, you know, there's one movie that actually had a lot, a big influence on Barry is this Italian movie called Mafioso. Um, and it's on the Criterion channel if people are interested in seeing it, but it, that, that's a movie I think I've, I've watched a couple of times and I've watched them. Um, uh, Salvador Giuliano. I hope I'm saying that right. I've watched that a couple of times. That's a beautiful movie. And then um, a movie called the fireman's ball, a Milos Foreman movie. Um, well, those are like ones I kind of have gone back to a couple of times. Um, so yeah, I mean, my head's always in that stuff. That's why I'm like impossible for my friends because I'm just a movie snob. So they're like, "Oh, did you see this thing that the culture is talking about?" And I was <laughs> like, "Is it a nine-hour uh, Russian movie from 1923?" <laughs> and they're like, "No." I'm like, "Oh, that's what I was watching." Like, "Well, aren't you cool?" Um, <laughs> So no, I'm just a a nerd. So oh, I like the Dennis Johnson book Seek. I thought was really good. Um, and then Tobias Wolf. Love reading his books. This is these are all great choices that we don't normally yeah. get on this podcast. Yeah, so you yeah, might no, have inspired I, I, somebody I, with one I, of them. Flannery O'Connor short stories. I, I always go back to those, and we actually kind of quoted one in one of the episodes. Um, uh, yeah, I love all that. My stuff. answer. My answer is a lot less uh, less smart and intelligent. I've been watching a lot of the comedies from the 2000s. Oh. <laughs> because we did we did Knocked Up recently for Rewatchables, but just in general, oh, wow. like um, just that era from 04 to 11 before things tilted a little bit, but also like all these young comedians are coming up. You were one of them, obviously. Uh, yeah. And the Apatow influence and oh, yeah. the Adam McKay Farrell and just, it's this eight year run of just amazing movies and they're really yeah. fun to go back and read now and watch now. It's so crazy to me to talk to people who are now in comedy and they're super young in comedy going, Oh man, I saw super bad and it got me into comedy. And right. Like, it's 15 oh, years ago. God, I can't believe it's been that long and it feels like, we just made it, you know, the biggest difference to me is I was smoking then, you know, <laughs> that's about it, you know? So it's so weird to me to feel like, Oh God, that, that 
that's, that was 15 years ago. And, and um, but it's always really, it's really exciting. I'm glad they exist and I could see it with uh, some of the younger people. I know my son, like watching him just plow oh, through yeah, all no, of them. It's weird watching Pat, you know, my, my oldest is in middle school now and seeing kids walking around with like, I was picking her up from school and a kid had the McLovin t-shirt of the McLovin driver's license, you know? And, uh, and my daughter was like, Oh, this is my dad. And he was like, Oh, Hey, what's going on? Did not recognize. No, <laughs> nothing. And I was like, do I say, Hey, I'm in that movie. That's no, kind of lame. I'm not going to say like, hey, man, nice to meet you. Oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I, well, you know, you what, know though? And then I went probably, to like tell her get it. But they probably would never, it would never occur to them that the person that's right in front of them was in this movie they liked, right? Even if you looked like yeah, the maybe. person. Yeah, maybe. You're maybe. still somebody's dad. Like they're not yeah, thinking you I'm have like, like a career. Yeah, I'm a dad that's like annoying, um, like weird, weird dad guy. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, that. And then the other one was one of my kids was at a sleepover and they, put on it it one and it two and that was that was weird she was like i don't know it was like i really liked the first movie and then they started the second movie and i was like wait oh right you're in this and i was like you visited the set because now i started coming back to me i'm like oh yeah we visited the set once and they but she was like eh, i just want you to be my dad <laughs> well you made the key point. When you become weird dad guy, it's the biggest ego blow you can have. Oh, dude. There's I don't no, know when it happens, it's but it's just. Though. It's kind of great, though. You need it. You have to. I love it that I'm, I'm in, I just, I hit 44. And yeah, I am. I have. The dishwasher has more uh, <laughs> say in my house. <laughs> I just, it's like people go, oh my God, Barry, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, if you just hung out in my house, you see, I am just, uh, you know, or yeah, I'm just not in control of anything. I have three daughters. Um, nobody's, nobody's less impressive than dad. When oh, the kid nobody, hits like nine. Yeah. Like nobody in there. No, I'm, you know, I mean, that's why it's like, oh, the show's premiering. Are you, you out? Are you doing stuff? And it's like, Oh, I have the house to myself. I'm watching a movie. <laughs> I'm like, right. you know, the basketball game's not on. I'm going to watch a movie or, you know, I know who won or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, you know, you just kind of do your thing. But uh, I think it's healthy. All right. I'm letting you go. All right. Happy, uh, happy thousand five hundred anniversary to us. Yeah, every every 500 we get together. Um, yeah, let's do more, it. More importantly, congrats on season three. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was fantastic. Good job. It means a lot. It means a lot, pal. Thanks. All right. Good to see you. All right. Thanks again to Kyle Creighton for producing. Thanks to Dylan Berkey and Steve Cerruti as well. I will be back after game six tomorrow night at some point with a reaction pod. Thanks for listening to the Thousand Podcast. Thanks for everything. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. What you use in your personal care routine matters, so upgrade your lineup with Dr. Squatch. 
They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients. That'll have you looking and smelling your best, like their wood barrel bourbon bar soap and lotion or their bay rum deodorant. They even have some limited edition soaps like their Avengers and Star Wars collections. Those seem like they'd be fun to try. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Simmons or use the code Simmons at checkout. 